Ongoing advances in generative AI are already having a huge impact on developer productivity. Tools like GitHub, Copilot, and ChatGPT are increasing the velocity of code development, and more advances are on the horizon. However, an ever-growing challenge for developers is how to manage their coding resources. Things like code snippets, website links, messages, and screenshots. This is hard for individual developers, but even harder for teams. Savo Nat is the co-founder and CEO of Pieces. Savo thinks deeply about developer productivity, and he joins the podcast today to talk about how Pieces is using AI to automate the process of saving, curating, and iterating on coding resources for developers and teams. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Mike Bifulco. Check the show notes for more information on Mike's work and where to find him. Hi, and welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. My name is Mike Bifulco. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, and I've been particularly fixated lately, and by lately, I probably mean for the past two to three years, on a topic that I think is sort of finding its way across the industry for software developers, for product teams, for programmers that have been learning and trying to learn and get better at things, and has particularly been intensified lately by sort of this dawn of generative AI and LLMs taking over everything we do. And in particular for me, that's sort of learning and note-taking and keeping track of what you're doing in general. And so today, I'm super happy to be sitting down with a new friend of mine by the name of Savo Not to talk about the application he's building called Pieces for Developers. Savo, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Mike? Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I'm doing really well. I'm like really psyched to talk to you about what you're building because it like hits all the tingly spots for me in terms of like learning and writing code and like really clever ideas for things that are sort of like once you've heard the idea, it makes a ton of sense and it feels like pieces are falling into place. No pun intended, I suppose, but things are falling into place in a way that like totally makes sense for where technology is now, but also putting an extra layer of thoughtfulness around it and creating opportunities for productivity and for knowledge sharing and things like that in ways that are just like slightly different than the way they used to be, but importantly, creating kind of a new paradigm. And so let's start there. Tell me what Pieces is. Yeah. So Pieces is a place to put things, right? And it's not only a place for you to put things, but it's also a place for the AI itself to put things. And it is aimed at kind of improving developer productivity throughout the work and progress journey, right? And so what I mean by that is as you're doing the work in the browser, the ID and the collaborative environment, those are the three major workflow pillars where there's a lot going on. And you know we want to capture that workflow context and the key materials and have a home for them and make that home interactive you know, with generative AI and, and conversational co-pilots, but also deeply aware of your current context, the things you need, maybe who you need to reach out to and so on. And you, know, you mentioned at the beginning here, the, the advent of generative AI and this new era that we're in, it's actually creating a couple of problems that I think pieces really starts to take aim at. And the first problem is that everyone is now moving 10 times faster or certainly expected to be. And if you think about it, like, as the number of searches go up that you do on Google, or as the number of conversations go up that you have in ChatGPT or the Pieces Copilot or whatever, the volume that you're interacting with material-wise is going way up in addition to that speed. And so you're remembering things less and you're interacting and connecting dots more. So, you know, for us, we're like, hey, you know, we need a system to put these small nuggets, these small tidbits and have them there for you, there for your team and just integrated throughout your whole workflow. So that's what we're doing at Pieces. And, and I'm sure we'll get into the details. 
Yeah, I'm obviously very interested in this for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that I'm integrating more and more workflows into my life every day for work. I'm curious, maybe the story of like how you got here. How did pieces come to be? Yeah, I would say it came to be, you know, kind of going through this professional process of creating software, right? And in company number two, we were building an ed tech platform. is is pretty simple. This was like 2015, 2016. And it would plug into the school's database and create group chats for all your classes, clubs, dorms, teams, and so on. And, you know, we ended up running that. It was called Mesh My Campus. We ran that for a couple of years, raised a good amount of funding around it. But we ended up sunsetting that because it is in the ed tech space, kind of pre-COVID, the investment in that region wasn't too hot at that time. But there was something interesting in that process of building that software. And that was, you know, I am copying and pasting all the time. As a developer, as a designer, as an animator, everything I do is kind of interact with a larger body of material and then take subsets of it. And I kind of go through that curation process and I, I want to put that somewhere. So that plus the idea of building this file system that you can upload files, send them to your classmates, download them, open them kind of just revealed itself to me that files are massive and people are dealing with small things. So we began to pioneer this thing called file fragments, which is effectively like a stabilized clipboard across Mac OS, Linux, and Windows. And then we also began to kind of reimagine the experiences of saving those things, searching those things, interacting with them via co-pilots. But this all starts with kind of you know, being able to save a file fragment and enrich it with on-device machine learning. So small models that know what these materials are. So that's kind of how we got into it. We we're like, we're dealing with small things a lot more than we are large things. And files are very bulky. And, you know, I want something at the lower level. Yeah, you mentioned two terms there that I think are subtly important in the larger context of this conversation. But curating what you're doing and then enriching it is kind of a brilliant take on things. My impression of a lot of developers picking up like engineering for the first time or maybe interviewing for their first job is that rote memorization seems to be part of the tactic to get the job, right? Like leak code and things like that seem to be like, let's memorize, you know, the Dijkstra algorithm for going through a graph or whatever. And like in the world we're starting to live in, you don't need to memorize those things. You need to be able to conceptualize and understand them. And I think some of that is curating like, hey, here's all the algorithms I can have in my back pocket and then enriching it so that like the system can tell me what these things all do. So can you give me maybe like a kind of a core use case for something where the curation and enriching of the information might help me get something done? Yeah, I think that, you know, in the developer journey, inspiration is a, is a large kind of driver for the end result. And so, you know, I was doing this the other day and we're working on our website right now. And I was looking at all these clever ways to do responsive text inside of a website, right? And text is text scaling is always the classic one. And so, you know, I'm on like 50 different blogs looking at all these tutorials and how people are using viewport units and container queries and all this stuff. And there are interesting approaches from, from each of these, right? And so when I'm in that phase one of, of researching and prototyping, I want to save those little inspirational nuggets somewhere. But also I want to know where they came from, what else they're related to. And I want to have them kind of all in one location that, you know, as I'm going through my work in my IDE, they can be surfaced, they can be, you know, relevant. And so, you know, for us, like that was phase one. I want them for now and I want them for later. But phase two is overcoming this challenge that thinking to save something is a conscious process. And then organizing is a process that takes a lot of investment and a lot of work. So to hit on your point around enrichment, 
I'm not going to take the time. I'm not that good of a note taker to title things, tag things, you know, organize them and so on. So I kind of wanted just a place to dump things. And then from there, have the whole system figured out, which is a holy grail of, you know, I guess the developer's brain, right? Half remember something and and look up the rest. (laughs) So organization and to get good organization, you need good enrichment. So when you put something into pieces, it's going to grab all of that workflow context who you're working on something with, where it came from, what sites were you, you know, kind of visiting before you came to something important. So you can pick up where you left off, backtrack, you know, and and just remember a certain point about something, go to pieces. And then from that small nugget of, of memory, find the entire thing, right? And kind of get back into it. So that's the goal is, is you need enrichment, you need context to be captured, and you need it to be available in all three pillars of your workflow. Yeah, that's super cool. And one of those things where the blending of all the stuff that's available on your computer is quite a bit more powerful when you're able to recall it two or three weeks later after you've fixed the problem and need to fix fixing the problem the second time around. And I'll just add to that. It's so funny, you know, with the generative AI stuff and the improvements in search, you're actually fixing more problems more often that are varying in a, to a larger degree in problem solution type, right? So one day I'm, I'm maybe doing CSS and the next day I'm doing, you know, Dart WebSockets and the next day I'm doing gRPC. So, you know, the variety in my workflow is going way up because I can solve things faster and find information faster, both in part to pieces and, and some of the generative AI stuff. But really pieces is now that that component that captures the things that I don't, you know, have the headspace to remember. So that's kind of, you know, the main goal for us is let it be proactive so you can move fast, but also you don't lose everything in passing, right? Sure. Yeah. So given that software engineering daily is a bit of an audio medium, you know, we do have a, a YouTube channel available for people to watch recordings and whatnot. But I think for folks who are just listening, what I'm curious about is maybe can you kind of describe like the UI workflow for using pieces for someone who's got it set up on their machine? Yeah, so it's as simple as this. We didn't want to change any of your classic behaviors, starting with copy and paste. I think Stack Overflow built a, an entire business model around <laughs> that. You know, it's, yeah, it's command yeah. C, command V. So, you know, that's all you need to remember to get started. Just go to a site, copy something, select copy, open pieces and paste it in. But from there, you know, we have a bunch of integrations, browser integration, IDE integration, Microsoft Teams integration, everywhere you can imagine pieces is available. So you can select some stuff, right click, save to pieces, you can search things right in place. You can use the co-pilots in all of these, these places. So being integrated is important for two things. One, it makes it easier to just fire and forget, right? A material that you need. Two, it captures a a step function and context awareness, right? So if you're in the IDE, it's pulling related people from Git collaborators. It's pulling the files, the projects, like all of that stuff. If you're in the browser, it's pulling the the source URLs. It's pulling, you know, some of the related browser history, if you will. And I will add for everyone out there, this entire system runs completely on device, right? So it's air-gapped. You can turn off the Wi-Fi and use it. But I think that making it super easy to just save things to pieces, first and foremost, gets you to phase two, which is now I'm in pieces and you can view things in a list view, a gallery view, but most notably kind of this global search. So once you're past 50 items and you're like me, I just dump everything in there. I go to global search, I go to the co-pilot and the co-pilot is effectively a conversational, you know, chat GPT that's grounded in the materials you've saved the websites you visited, the people you're related to, and all of that. So when you ask it a question, you don't have to give it like, hey, this is my language and this is what I needed in and this is what I did yesterday. It's just already aware of that context. So after a little while of use, you know, Pieces is going to be capturing things for itself to make future experiences like search and and co-pilot interactions even better. 
And then I'm excited because this quarter we're getting to the holy grail of it. And I might have mentioned this in passing to you, but it's kind of this TikTok for developers, right? And it's to the point where it is saving and serving materials to you at a rate that is so performant that by the time you switch from the browser to the IDE, those lists, those related people, the, the related snippets, links, everything there is in a list that's continuously restacked and re-ranked for you for what you need right when you need it. So you can think about this as like, Copilot right above the code level, right? And across the entire operating system. The two kind of things that we think we're leading in is, is on Mac OS, Linux and Windows, you can get pieces. And then, you know, privacy is a big thing, especially for developers. So all the models can run completely on device. You can use Llama 2, several versions just right there. And we pack it in and it's, it's good to go. Yeah, that's pretty outrageous. So fully disconnected, right? If I'm in the middle of the ocean with no Wi-Fi, no satellite network, anything like that, this still will serve me with autocomplete based on the the model and context that I've sort of fed into pieces in the past. Is that right? That's right. And I'll add, you know, we are doing a lot in the teams and enterprise space right now. And what happens is you kind of have developers using pieces in their own workflow. But then when you go into a team environment, you can actually do a lot of peer-to-peer stuff. So Pieces OS runs a little server on your computer. It's what allows all the integrations to connect to it, allows you to build things on top of it, and so on. But that server, you can actually kind of do a, a flattened you know, network and basically say, hey, I want to include Mark search results, or I want to include you know, Max workflow activity or, or something like that. Of course, that's opt-in you know, with all the sharing permissions, but it is nice because the entire system, even in a team environment, can be kind of air-gapped and, and direct. So you know, it, it really compounds the productivity that individuals get when you bring it to a team. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about that sort of team collaboration using pieces. I'd imagine this requires a little bit of habit forming, right? Like getting used to, hey, I'm going to copy and paste and things I want to remember into pieces. But also if it's paying attention to what you're doing, there's some some sense that it's getting smarter along the way. What does the collaboration workflow look like as those habits are formed amongst teammates? So I'll add this, and this is kind of the secret sauce. So kind of the first important thing that you just mentioned there, you have to be aware to save things. You need to realize, hey, I need this because later on I'm going to anticipate that problem. And, and that actually is a skill that, you know, a lot of more senior developers kind of develop where they've realized, you know, too late, too often that they didn't have something. But nonetheless, it is a, a habit you need to develop. So in Q4, you know, we just wrapped up a bunch of stuff in Q3 from the, the pieces OS side, the, the tech side, that in Q4, you will really see this thing turning on the autosave. So we will bring you up to about 300 things in rotations, continually ranked and, and also deprecated. And you actually won't even need integrations either. So we have a model that is able to kind of take a screenshot of your desktop, if you will, again, on device, segment that screenshot where it says, hey, this is code. That's a URL, everything you need. It's a pretty cutting edge model, actually. And it does this very, very performantly. It's not recording all the time, but when you switch apps or you switch tabs or, or you do something that is a a workflow change indicator, if you will, we're going to capture that. And so, you know, even without integrations, we're going to be able to understand your behavioral patterns of a workflow and then improve that for you. So if you never save anything yourself, you'll have search results, you'll have copilot context, and you'll have materials that when you look at this in a team setting, no one saves anything, everyone has everything, right? And so I think like, that's really interesting is to be able to search someone else's workflow on how they solved a problem regarding a config or, you know, maybe a server down or, or some type of you know, situation. And so I think that the proactive nature of this thing shadowing you and capturing what's important 
and then scaling that to a company, that means that all the stuff that is not getting saved or captured anyways, because people weren't thinking to do it, is now getting captured and it becomes searchable, available, and so on. Sure. I think that's one of those things that happens a lot as teams grow and change too, right? Like the unplugged experience of this, the software-less experience of this is that your senior most team member changes teams, gets a new job, starts managing a different team, and all of the things stuck in their brain kind of disappears. Or you're onboarding someone new, right? A, a college hire, an intern is starting for the summer and you need to get them up to speed. Usually that involves a person-to-person -person download of information, like a sit down and talk for a long time about things. And if you're building a sort of team-aware context of notes and processes and tasks, I think that's probably one of those things that can help get people up to speed really quickly, right? You're absolutely right. And so, you know, I mentioned a lot like this idea of pieces capturing who is related to your stuff. So in that case, exactly, you know, you can come into pieces as a new employee or a new intern or something. And, you know, you could have a few things saved, do a Google search or a piece of search, if you will. And it's going to get team member profiles right there saying, hey, reach out to this person because they just did something very similar a couple of days ago. So you'll start to see like this almost like completely proactive experience roll out in Q4 and Q1. Because again, you know, there's so much that is lost in translation, lost in passing that is so valuable. Just one website that you saw that just helped you, you know, intuitively solve a problem that someone else could, you know, access and, and again, solve it twice as fast, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, there's this paradoxical feeling of, of being a dev in particular, if you're connected to sort of the social graph in any way where you're kind of like, oh, I've heard about this before. This problem has been solved. I know I saw a gist about it or a, a code pen or something months ago. I have no idea who shared it. I have no idea what the actual answer was, but I remember it and I remember it was cool. Like that's something that I run through easily several times a month and would love to kind of pluck that responsibility from the back of my brain or from my own note-taking habit and put it into something else. So that's spot on, you know, that's what happens and that's what's going on in the, the human brain. We're just trying to capture it, right? Get it closer yeah. to the workflow, integrate it into those pillars and, and leverage some really cool high performance on device ML. Yeah. And so you, to that end, your ML magic behind the scenes is that you've built the pieces copilot, which then starts to take this stuff and, and allows me to do, for lack of a better term, copiloty things with this information that I've stored. So now I can like truly have a conversation about and with the snippets and notes and websites that I visited, right? What does that look like? So, you know, the context is everything when it comes to co-pilots. And, and if you take a look at like high performance co-pilots and by high performance, I mean like, you know, a small model that's giving you the highest fidelity responses, right? That means that your orchestration layer, your retrieval augmented generation, everything there needs to be like super precise and you need to have context that is breath. Right. Of course, you need some depth for very specific copilot responses, but most of the time you want something that is aware of everything that was going on, right? Even aware of your team member stuff. And so for us, like we say, Hey, you can throw a large language model in the cloud, like, you know, chat GPT or Palm. You can go into pieces and, and select your model, or you can use a small model like Llama 2. But at the end of the day, all of these large language models are plug and play because the orchestration layer, one, has a lot of context, right, across your whole workflow, but two, is able to use that context to kind of like surface and organize materials ahead of time. So even when you ask for that response, it's going to say, we already know the top five things you could possibly ask about right now with a high level of you know certainty based on what you were doing. And so, you know, by building in not only the what, right, but also the when and the where and the who into Copilot's kind of context layer, then you're going to have really, really unique responses. 
Yeah, that's pretty wild. The feeling of I'm going to turn to my smart robot and ask it a question and it's already answered it is kind of like a very out there, wild, new to me experience, certainly. I love that idea. I think that's really exciting. I'll say this real quick. The stuff I just talked about with regards to the ranking and the kind of pre-grounding, if you will, that all powers the feed. And the feed is, you know, again, your materials that are just ordered one through 10, you know, you can scroll it and so on ahead of time, right? And so when you have a feed that's really smart, and then you take that feed and those items are now used to ground the co-pilot, you're going to get like the right context, the right responses. And even the user doesn't need to think about what context to set for the co-pilot. Right now, that's a manual process. You have to say, hey, you know, select this project, select the site, select these materials. Even all of that can be automated. So, you know, you see it with YouTube, you see it with TikToks. They always talk about the algorithms, how good they are at getting you in every single day. And I think like if we take that and we apply it to your resources from your workflow, it's great for grounding a co-pilot, but it's also great for having what you need right there, you know, without asking anything. Yeah, I think in the context of social media feeds, when people talk about the algorithm, it tends to be with a negative connotation and like, we're all cursed to be subject to the algorithm. But when the algorithm starts working for you, that's a very interesting paradigm shift there. Yeah. And I have a kind of interesting philosophy about what I build. You know, I, I kind of refuse to build like video games and social media apps and stuff like that. Like I'm a very utilitarian type of individual. So I would just say like, those are great algorithms. Let's apply it to your, <laughs> your materials, right? The things that can help you and your team move faster, right? Yeah. So one of the things I really like about pieces from having used it a bit is the view of context for something that you're looking up. So in sort of the context of the pieces app, you can type in a question or a search or however you want to look at it, and you'll get a series of responses that if you haven't used it before, kind of looks like search results, right? Like your sort of Google results for something that you've searched. But what it does really well is something that almost harkens back to like the early days of search for me, where it's like, here's what you searched for. Here's related terms or related topics. Uh, terms might not even be the right thing there. And then also like, here's the people that this all came from. And so I like the idea of knowing that like, say, for example, I'm looking up cores errors, which, you know, every developer in the world just shuddered listening to those words come out of my mouth. But like, if suddenly I not only have cores, but I have the related terms to search for that. And also like maybe the top two or three people who are good at solving these problems, I can also turn to them directly for expertise as needed too. That's exactly right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, your co-pilot or your search results are only going to get you so far, right? And so if you're limited by the fidelity of those responses, then the next best thing is who to talk to, right? You know, and do they have anything? So I think the related people component is really important to capture. And it's not only inside of your IDE, like if you save something from a blog or from YouTube or whatever else, it's going to pull that author. So it says, you know, whose blog should I read about whatever? It's going to start to surface, hey, this is one of your top read authors, you know, for CSS, right? Or whatever. So I think it's people, both public, open source, but also internal to your team being surfaced in those results. So you can go and look at more verbose you know, materials or, or reach out to them via a collaborative channel. But yeah, search, we're working on it. Yeah. So this is, I think our conversation so far has focused pretty heavily on like developer tooling and developer things and answering dev questions. But I think one of the realities of the world we're working in is that like the problems we're solving span more than just, I need to write code to do thing. And some of them are maybe more like soft skills related problems. So is pieces the sort of thing that can enrich workflows with say designers or PMs or something like that as well? Yeah. So we're really excited because our focus all along, and you'll notice this has just been on small things, right? And so enriching small things, things that you copy and paste, right? That's where it all started. And so, you know, designers actually share a lot of the same workflows as developers, right? So 
They're looking for inspiration. They're looking for templates. They're looking for all that stuff. They're copying and pasting from project A to project B. They're actually working with developers a lot. And more often, they're going straight from design to kind of boilerplate code. So you'll see us in 2024 start to generalize the brand and have it be, of course, really still A plus four developers, but it'll be pieces as opposed to pieces for developers, right? And so we'll start to move into pieces where it's even better for front-end devs or you know mobile devs, pieces now where it's really great for designers that work with devs. And so kind of moving up that digital supply chain, if you will, from dev to design and looking at the cycles that occur naturally, like that's a really nice place for us. And I can tell you this, I got a demo on an all hands, I think it was two all hands ago, and the models for tagging, titling, all this stuff, still on device, still very robust. And they actually use the same pipeline that we have for code. But number two, in pieces, multimodality has been a big focus, right? So if you take a screenshot, right, pulling out the code or being able to tell your co-pilot to watch this video ahead of time and pull the code and the transcript and, and ground it. But long story short, when you get something like a screenshot, whether you're a designer or a developer, you want to take it and turn it to something more valuable. So the thing I was most impressed with was I got an early preview at the PNG to SVG model. It's the OCR equivalent of what we have today for developers. And you'll know our OCR does two things. One, obviously extracts the code, but two, it repairs the broken characters in that code, like ones that are tricky, you know, colons, parentheses, brackets, all that. In the design space, you could say, hey, I need an icon, right? I know this desktop app has this icon right here, screenshot of it, put it into pieces, and boom, you've got the SVG of that icon out. You can look at the XML code, you can look at whatever else. So again, the multimodality, we really want to look at, you know, what are the common things, the common problems that you run into at the very small level where it's like, oh, that frustrating icon that's stuck in a UI, I got to go find it somewhere, right? Versus screenshot, SVG, now you're on your way. So we think that'll be really nice for mobile devs, front-end devs, and then also just full-blown designers eventually. And yeah, Figma plugins are coming very soon too. Heck yeah, wow. I have spent my career dodging back and forth between UX and design and development roles. And I have personally spent many, many hours tracing over pictures to make SVGs. And I can tell you, if you're listening to this and you've never done that, it is like one of the world's most tedious activities. And if that's good for you, so much the better, but it is not my jam at all. I would love to never have to do that again. I kid you not. I'm a co-founder. I do anything that's needed. And I also have a design background, but I kid you not. The Azure Data Studio logo, really hard to find out there. Last week, I found myself because we have a, a plugin for it going out. I did the same exact thing, taking a path tool, doing the curves, doing everything. It was it was brutal. So yeah. <laughs> it's a labor of love. And the, the real curse behind it is that no one will ever know you did it because you've created the same picture that they've seen before. You know, that's exactly yeah. right. So, you know, I'm excited about the small things that pieces will support for developers and designers on top of that. Definitely. Yeah. I really like the notion of privacy that you all have built in too. So you mentioned before that this is something that works offline and it's sort of inherent in that is that like the data that I'm recording for this is mine and stored locally on my machine. Can you talk a little bit about the portability of that? Like if I, you know, moving to a new device, how does that work for me? So we are doing a lot on the device to device stuff. And so basically you can think of the stuff rolling out in early Q4 is effectively airdrop, if you will, for your materials between people, between devices. And we also have this thing rolling out called workspaces. So you can airdrop a certain kind of grouping of your things, but privacy is super important to us. So, you know, actually 
Thank you for bringing this up because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, do you train our your models on the data and stuff like that? And the answer is no, because the data we actually need is out there readily available. And these big companies and even open source movements, you know, have open CV data sets that we can leverage. And so at the end of the day, going from a big model to a small model is hard in certain regards. But when it comes to the data, we have a surplus of that, right? It's more so the prompt engineering, the fine tuning, like how you kind of do the algorithm enrichment to make that model better. So there's no data training going on. And then the other thing is like, we're a software startup working with code, right? And you know how long SOC 2 is, you know how long GDPR (laughs) is, you know how long all these processes are, but our investors, they want us in enterprise, you know, doing enterprise pilots as fast as possible. So this came in a couple weeks ago, but long story short, we had a bank. I won't name the bank or where it is, right? But they came in, a couple developers, and they were like, Hey, we like what you're doing. We want to, you know, check it out, do a pilot, bring it to the team. And I was like, okay, great. You know, hop on the call with a few decision makers and, and they're like, all right, you know, where does this stuff go? What's a diagram of your system and all that? And I just recorded the whole demo, Wi-Fi off the entire time, co-pilot and all. And they were like, okay, well, clear as day. It's it's local. So I think like making a system that starts from the the largest level of constraints, right? On device, ultra secure, ultra private. That enables you to move into those environments and enables them to take more risk and also doesn't close the door to like DOD or like healthcare or whatever else, kind of highly regulated environments. But then opting into cloud things is the second phase, which is the easier task there. And now we're getting to the easy stuff where you're going to think we're shipping features every week. But at the end of the day, we started our journey, the hard things. Now it's just layering on the knowns. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Do the hard thing first and incrementally add the nice to haves after the fact. As a great approach. So I want to get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of things and talk about how it works. Can you tell me at whatever level you're able to share kind of the architecture behind pieces and how you've built it? Yeah. So, you know, big challenge. I think that it's so funny. I have a few mobile devs that are like, I'm shipping this app on iOS and Android and it has its nuances and different UI stuff and, and so on, but it's a challenge. We're doing this across Mac OS, Linux, and Windows with on-device Edge ML that has to interface with you know C++ and Rust and, and all that. And so we needed a system that was like really kind of sticky and kind of isomorphic in nature. So we ended up going with Dart. And Dart is this really kind of contemporary language, great asynchronous support, pretty solid garbage collection. But it allows you to compile to binaries for each of those platforms, as well as compile to JavaScript for a web runtime environment. And then the UI layer, we ended up going with Flutter. However, the systems are very separate to where all the capability that occurs on device actually is able to also run isomorphically in a server. So, you know, Dart has been the secret to our kind of work here. And then we needed something that could tap into device hardware, right? For model acceleration, GPU detection, all of that. And Dart has this excellent FFI capability, foreign function interface. And that is what lets us, you know, have a parallel C runtime or a parallel Rust runtime, you know, ahead of time binary for those things and just talk right to it from the Dart code, right, from the Dart runtime. So I think the flexibility there and the isomorphism have been really the A plus decision for us. And if you look at other companies out there, they're Series B only on Mac OS, you know, saying, hey, Windows coming soon or Linux coming soon. And so we're pretty proud of, again, like, cross-platform, all types of developers, all types of environments, and then, you know, reducing technical debt because we have such isomorphic code. Yeah, no doubt. It must mean you have some fairly isomorphic developers then. What's your engineering team look like? 
Yeah. So I would say there's about 15 or 16 engineers. The company's like 19 people total. So, you know, even our growth is like developer advocacy. But my background is actually from isomorphic JavaScript. So way back in the day, I was doing stuff in the browsers. And, you know, there's all types of nuances when you have to transpile it for Internet Explorer. Like those are the dark days. But (laughs) isomorphism for me was really nice. And I was super fascinated by high-performant clients, but also where you can take that code and deploy it to a server. So I actually worked in the JavaScript space around web components and high-performance kind of isomorphic code for seven or eight years. And then I needed something that was both native, compiled to JavaScript at a high-performance level, but also each of the native binaries for macOS, like Apple Silica or Intel. And I also needed something that could interop really well with other languages. And we found ourselves thinking about this from a perspective of, oh, take a JavaScript app, you know, wrap it in Electron or Chromium or whatever and deploy it to the edge. But when you start to do so much at the operating system level, like, you know, file interactions, right-click experiences on your desktop, you know, low-level hardware acceleration, like, you need something that's a beefier language. And Dart was, like, right there for us. We're pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an open source story for pieces? Yeah. So we are... (laughs) I'll say this. Open source is a lot to manage, right? I feel for every single open source contributor and author out there, you know, because at the same time, like you're building software, you're also managing and building a community, right? Everyone has their levers that they want to pull, the features that they want to have, the pull requests that they have open. And so it can be a bit chaotic. I would say once we're kind of up on our feet past our series A, there's going to be a lot of open source that starts happening. And we see this, you know, there's really not a lot of sense around you know, having something that's locked down from an IP perspective or whatever, because anything that you think you have can probably be done by someone else or AI within a few years. And, you know, it's like exactly what we saw with Meta. They're like, hey, cool, ChatGPT, here's Llama 2. You know, that threw a wrench in everyone's, you know, kind of business plans. And you just see it so often that for us, we're like, hey, we want to enable not only us to build experiences, but also anyone to build experiences on top of pieces. But yeah, 2024 and beyond, you'll start to see big open source pushes. I think I'm going to give you more credit than you're giving yourself here, but I will mention that github.com slash pieces dash app has quite a bit of like open and visible software there. So up to and including a plugin for Obsidian, which I think is at least really interesting to see how these things work. That's showing a degree of openness from the get-go that I think is also admirable too. When I mean like open source, I think like for us, it's a big business investment. So we'll be shipping nine SDKs. Most of our code is generated, but it'll be enabling developers to build on top of pieces OS, you know, internal tooling, whatever, you know, integration they want. So nine SDKs, and that actually is starting to get solidified in Q4 here. We use all the SDKs ourselves, but documenting them, having the open API spec out there, dealing with people's bugs, like we have no clue who's someone who uses the Go SDK. We have no idea what they're going to come back and say, right? So they might say, hey, this is broken in your code generator, (laughs) go fix it. And, you know, that's a whole thing, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the what you're building with, the composition of your team, also like stories for the future and, and for integrations, and really cool to hear that, that you're building out SDKs and client libraries that devs will be able to at least start to consume at some point in the near future. What are your favorite things that you're looking forward to in terms of building that are coming soon? I think the design stuff is really interesting, primarily as a front-end developer speaking. Obviously, I'm full stack, but I am, you know, the designer in me makes sure like the UIs and and the websites and stuff looks A+. And I'll tell you, you know, the front-end development flow is such a messy workflow, right? It's just, it's so all over the place. There's like four languages, right? You know, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all that. 
So I think like supporting that cohort of users is going to be A+. I think that there's a lot of improvements to the co-pilot coming up, you know, chain of thought reasoning, on-device optimization, stuff like that, that'll make it really, really world-class. And then the peer-to-peer stuff, I think will be excellent. So we got our plate full, I would say, but everything we're doing is spot on, at least that I'm excited about, you know. Sounds like it. Yeah. It's an exciting roadmap to get into. For folks who are listening to the show right now, tell us how to get started with pieces. And also, I'm a little bit curious about like when is the Copilot available for use? So the Copilot, you can try it out today, but the persistent Copilot chats actually go live in a, about, I think, a week and a half. October 14th is the target date. So those are persistent chats on your materials, which is really nice. And then you can use you know, the Palm models, the Llama models, or the OpenAI models today as well. We will have some stuff in 2024 where everyone in 2023 were considering early adopters. They'll get a discount for the advanced co-pilot add-on in 2024, which is just like unlimited everything, right? A-plus experience. But yeah, you can try it. Pieces.app, go give it a look. You know, Remember, save things, use the co-pilot, search for those things. It's all starting with a copy and paste or a simple question to the co-pilot. Yeah, right on. And if folks listening to the show give it a shot and they have feedback for you or for your team, what's the best way to do that? Well, we have contact on our site. I think you can email hello at pieces.app. You could probably email me. Just I don't know if I should put that out there. But <laughs> yeah, it's just savo at pieces.app. Real simple email. You know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. But the team, we're pretty active. We have a Discord. We do all types of live streams and stuff like that. So if you want to come talk to us, please do. Cool. That's perfect. Well, Savo, thanks so much for joining today. It's been really interesting talking to you and I'm super excited about Pieces. I hope the folks listening to the show dive in and give it a shot. If you're listening, the site is pieces.app, P-I-E-C-E-S dot app. We will drop tons of links to the things we've chatted about in the show notes today. Savo, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Mike. And, you know, love the tangents, love the, you know, the kind of riff and excellent stuff. It's, it's all pretty interesting. Right on, man. Well, come back anytime. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 